Welcome to another episode of the Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. In this special episode for the International Day of Persons with Disabilities on the 3rd of December, we'll be focusing on the experiences of people with disabilities in the workplace. In October 2019, it was reported by the UK's Office for National Statistics that 7.7 million people of working age reported that they had a disability, some 19% of the working age population. 53% of people with disabilities are in employment, up from 51% a year previously. But for comparison, the employment rate for people without disabilities stands at 82%. In addition, people with disabilities are considerably more likely than those without to be economically inactive, meaning they're not in work or looking for work. This high rate of economic activity, coupled with higher unemployment rates, has created what's known as the disability employment gap. While other European countries, including France, Sweden and Latvia, have managed to substantially reduce the size of their disability employment gaps, it remains stubbornly high in the UK. Unfortunately, the challenges don't end once someone with a disability secures a job. As evidence suggests, they are overrepresented in low-skilled and low-status jobs, more likely to work in jobs for which they're overqualified and have reduced access to training and career progression opportunities. But why should businesses be concerned about closing the gap? Well, aside from the strong ethical argument that all employers seeking to be socially responsible should strive to achieve a diverse and inclusive workplace, there's a compelling case that people with disabilities represent a huge untapped resource. To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by Sean Fitzsimmons, Employment Advocacy Coordinator at Disability Action. Sean, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me along here today, Laura. It's a privilege to be here at Queen's. Thank you. Sean, can I uh, first ask you how we can define disability? Do you think it's a word that's often accompanied by misconceptions and stereotypes? Very good question, Laura. I think the simple answer to your latter question there is yes, there's a massive amount of of misconception and stereotype around the word disability. Uh, There's also an awful lot of stigma as well. I think the best way to look at disability is is to speak with disabled people and look at how they view it. Um, Disabled people generally uh, view disability uh, in, in 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 a kind of understanding that it is society that disables them. Um, we would look to something called the social model of disability, which says that, that it is the barriers around us that makes us disabled. So it brings into question, you know, is it a disabled person or a person with disability? Um, and that, that's that's kind of an ongoing question. Disabled people generally, uh, if, if they believe and adhere to that social model thinking, will say that they are disabled people. But I think either or is fine. I think it's the approach. I think the big challenge for disabled people now is that they're kind of caught in a situation where you're either perceived to be a scrounger or an inspiration. Uh, and there's no middle ground. I think as disabled people, uh, we want people to understand, you know, as regular uh, John or Jane, you know, we, we have aspirations, we have goals and desires like anybody else, and they mightn't be necessarily winning the Paralympics. It also means that if we're not fit to work, we're not necessarily a burden or a scrounger or anything like that. So I think that's a big challenge that goes on. Um, I think a lot of that thinking has been shaped by by the media uh, and also by uh, political agendas. And I think that's very unfortunate because I think as much as we try to resist it, there's a drip-down effect and it affects us all. And we all have to kind of keep a check on that when it comes to how we view uh, what it means to be disabled. You know, if a person isn't in a wheelchair, are they just putting it on? Um, if they're disabled and they're driving a new car, you know, is that a DLA car? Are, are they? Do they really deserve that? You know, they're working less than me. Um, I think it's it's an interesting time. I think there's an awful lot more challenge now around that negative kind of stereotype, and I think it's good to see. Absolutely. And how did you actually become involved in advocating for people with disabilities? 
uh, as a disabled person myself, um, I, I, I've grown up uh, with with a disability and with various conditions which uh, impact upon me. So I'm, I'm kind of intimately aware of a lot of the barriers myself. Now, I wouldn't for a second say I understand and know them all. Uh, my background is in law and education, uh, and I got involved in working for Disabil- Disability Action close to 10 years ago. Um, I think the big driver for me in, in moving forward in this area of work has been sitting at so many tables where disabled people are, are largely absent uh, and where decisions are being made around policy and practice that that will ultimately impact disabled people where they haven't been meaningfully talked to, consulted or involved in the design and delivery of services. Um, I, I think that needs to change uh, and I'm very proud uh, to work for Disability Action and play a small part trying to affect that change. It is something that is so incredibly important, isn't it, that having people at the table or involved in the decision-making process that actually have real lived experience. Yeah, ab- absolutely, Laura. I mean, it, it seems like common sense. And so many people go, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then if you look at, at maybe something that's being rolled out, uh, a government programme, quite topical. I mean, you know, if you ask, you know, where were the disabled people involved in the design of that system that is ultimately going to affect them specifically? And if you scratch back through it, you find very, very little evidence of it. And sometimes that's not through deliberate, let's keep them out. It's just not thinking. So if you're speaking with certain organisations that work for disabled people, that's good. But are the disabled people at the table when it comes to it? And if they're not, they should be. And I think what that does is that makes it easier for everybody. Um, getting them in at an early stage, they'll be able to point out things. And this this is uh, equally applicable for ourselves. We at Disability Action always say, you know, we're not the experts in everything. We mightn't always have the answer, but if we don't have it, we'll go off and find it for you. And I think we are constantly being checked by, by, by disabled people who will say, have you thought of this? And we're very open to that and we try and do our best to be open. And I think that's something we all should try and do. For anybody who's unfamiliar with the work of Disability Action, could you tell us a little more about what the organisation strives to achieve? Good question. Uh, Disability Action have existed for over 30 years now in Northern Ireland. We're the largest pan-disability organisation around. Um, We work on a number of fronts. We deliver services uh, in one area of our business, which look at employment, training, transport, uh, information and advice. We also uh, are the main aim of our organisation is to advance and support disabled people in realising their rights as citizens. Uh, And that's a huge part of our work, which uh, is constantly ongoing, constantly evolving. And it's something that we try uh, and keep at the forefront of everything we do. So for delivering a service, it needs to be a service that fulfills that goal. Um, I think one of the big things that we have had to contend with over the last couple of years has been changes uh, in terms of no government, changes in funding and stuff like that. So we're going through a a kind of state of change. But it's an exciting time. I think our current strategic plan looks at advancing disabled people as leaders. And it's something that I'm very passionate about is, is making sure that we create the opportunities for other disabled people coming forward to advance the, the agenda of disability equality. Would you say that the demand for your services are only increasing at the moment? Absolutely, massively. And I think there at times can be a lot of frustration. Um, we would work very closely with government departments and stuff like that. And a lot of the time we would take telephone calls and emails from them and we would have to say to them, look, we would love to become involved in this, but if there's no resource attached to it, we just physically can't do it. Equally, we would have disabled people uh, in certain areas where, where barriers are being faced, where, where we don't actually do a lot of work, where we would like to be working. Uh, one example would be in, in educational provision. Um, th- there can be frustration too, but but 
I think that goes back to our, our efforts now of, of encouraging and supporting other people in terms of leadership because there needs to be other people alongside us working together to achieve the change. Absolutely. And um, from your experience, what would you say the main sort of barriers or challenges you find that disabled people face in relation to finding and maintaining employment? Very typical. I mean, if we take the journey of the disabled person applying for a job, first and foremost, I suppose, is, is there an apprehension there in terms of the culture of an organisation? Are they presenting themselves as an organisation that is open to having disabled employees? And that, that sounds quite... You know, you might think, well, Sean, you know, why would an organisation not want that? But but some organisations are better than it than others in terms of, of promoting the values of having disabled people. I, you know, I point out Microsoft uh, um, under the, the stewardship of, of Jenny Di Fleury, uh, Hector Minto uh, and Jessica Refuse. They have now made that part of their DNA. And, and that's not just selling accessible control pads to customers. It is in, in how they staff their, their accessibility area, how they... Um, taking on contracts with providers, everything the whole way through. So I think that that initial challenge is, do, do they seem like a friendly organisation? The application process, is, is the application process set up in a way that might exclude a lot of people? If, for example, you don't drive, say, for example, you're blind, and part of the provision of that is, well, you have to have access to a driving licence in a car, we still see that, and that shouldn't be the case. That should be, you know, can you meet the transport or travel arrangements of the job? So it's getting past that initial hurdle. We then have the question of, do I disclose my disability in the application form? I get asked that time and time again. I often joke, you know, for a pound for every time that was said, I'd be lying on a beach somewhere. <laughs> um, and it's a very difficult one to answer. And we say to people, like, you know, that is entirely up to you. If you want to request reasonable adjustments, we would say it's better. Um, or if there's a health and safety application, absolutely you need to say it. But it's entirely up to you. And people say quite often, my disability is invisible. Um, I have enough challenges and barriers getting into the job like anybody else, you know, a lot of people are looking for work at the minute. Why would I put myself at a disadvantage? So that's another big one. So that's getting into the job. That's getting to the interview stage. Um, if they request reasonable adjustments throughout that process, we have seen an awful lot of resistance, particularly if it is in, in, in large organisations that are maybe doing standardised testing and stuff yes. like that. And you've probably seen there's been a bit of litigation quite recently um, around that. And that has come down in favour of the disabled person, which was good, but it's still a big problem, still a big challenge. So if they get into work, there are those classic things of attitude. Um, they may be going into a, a situation where a department is, is quite understaffed, under pressure, and they are coming in the door, they're firefighting from the word go, and if they then raise the fact that they have a disability, there, there's kind of a breakdown in relations and, well, how do we deal with this? Um, there's also a fear, I think, on the employer side, and, and I think it's important to say the vast majority of employers want to do the right thing, but it's getting the right information at the right time. So if someone discloses having a disability, quite often we would get telephone calls from employers who are quite panicked. Uh, we say to them, look, you're doing the right thing. We can work through this. This is grand. Um, people are afraid of saying and doing the wrong thing. So um, maintaining, uh, the big one that we see around maintaining is having a kind of record of, of what, what those reasonable adjustments are, making sure they're regularly reviewed. And as I said there earlier about, about the kind of pressures in organisations, if you previously had a line manager that was very good and very supportive to you and they suddenly move off and there's no record of those things, we would typically see things start to fall apart and people would fall out of work. Retention is a big issue for disabled people. 
And I'd imagine that once somebody does fall out of work, it can be really difficult for them to, for a variety of reasons, not least the damage to their self-confidence, to get back into work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think depending on the size of the organisation, again, it it very much depends because you have huge organisations that are doing great work and and you have small ones that are doing great work. But I I tend to find in larger organisations, sometimes that person can get lost. They become a number. And through nobody's fault, it's not advanced as quick as it should be. Or if somebody discloses a disability, for example, and they're all sick, um, there's nearly this this expectation that they must follow policy and they must go to occupational health. And this is despite the fact that an individual might be presenting the GP's letter saying, look, Johnny or Jane's fine, that they're getting on grand, they're ready to go back to work, here's my... Whereas they'll maybe have to wait six, eight, twelve weeks for an occupational health appointment and then another four weeks for them to get the report and find out that the report's maybe a wee bit generic. So all these things kind of add, and that in the meantime can create a, a kind of breakdown in relations, maybe a wee bit of suspicion. People become, you know, they work with these people all their lives. Why are they making me wait? I'm telling them I'm fit yes. to work. So, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's challenging. incredibly fraught yeah. from literally yeah. before the application is yeah. even submitted. Yeah. And there's a lot of discussion about how we have in the UK and many other countries an ageing population. Is um, In addition to that, that we're going to have to work longer because of changes to pension regulations. Is that likely to result in more people with disabilities in the workplace? I would say absolutely. And it's something that we should be thinking about now. And, and I think, you know, that there is that, that notion that, you know, younger people now that maybe don't have a disability, don't know anybody with a disability, assume that this isn't something that will affect them at some stage later in their life. Um, and if we look at something like cancer i think i mean the statistics change all the time but the last thing i read was you know if we all lived to 100 uh one in two of us would get cancer at some stage in our lifetime so cancer would fall under those dda protections and we would see more and more people now that obviously you know if you get a diagnosis of cancer it's not the end and you want to carry on working you might have family commitments and all that sort of stuff so i think it's 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 definitely something that is going to be on the increase and it's something we should be thinking about now uh, as to how we how we adapt and adjust because it literally could affect any of us at any point in our lives. And so um, as a result, it's something that we all need to be attentive towards and to be thinking about, because one day you may be the, in the position of being the person that um, needs support and um, in the workplace. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Do you think that there is um, really a, a lack of awareness of the potential value that people with disabilities can bring to the workplace? I definitely think there is. You know, in my experience and our organisation's experience, we work with employers across Northern Ireland and and indeed further afield. And I think there is this challenge of of changing attitudes. And it sounds cliche at this stage, but disabled people will tell you it is the biggest barrier that we face. And I think those attitudes can affect us all and they affect employers. So if, if an employer maybe is encountering somebody uh, or, or is thinking about a workforce and a disabled person, they might automatically think, wheelchair, I don't have a ramp, that's going to be expensive. Um, they might also think this person's going to be off sick much more often, which statistics actually show the otherwise. Um, they might be asking for this, that and the other, everything under the sun, which is going to cost me money. Um, they might cause difficulties in a team where we have a level of automation, where certain teams need to produce a certain amount of numbers. Um, and it's all those fears and apprehensions that I think immediately put up those barriers. Whereas if they looked at it another way, I mean, a lot of the disabled people I would work with and know some of the challenges and barriers that they overcome every single morning getting out of the house on time and getting to work um, tapping into those skills and tapping into that resilience and bringing that into your organisation 
will reap benefits. I mean, we would work with organizations that say that. I, I'd name-checked Microsoft earlier. They seem to be ahead of the game when it comes to large, large organizations. They're getting it, and they are definitely uh, reaping the rewards. Absolutely. And even just thinking back on those statistics that I mentioned at the start, that you know, 19% of the working age population identifies as having a disability. These are your clients, your yeah. customers. Yeah. And so you want to make sure that you are providing goods and services that meet their needs. And surely having a broad representation among your staff is going to help you do that. And maybe that's why Microsoft have picked up yeah. on that early, yeah. is yeah. that we are selling products to um, you to many people with disabilities. So surely we should have them represented on our teams absolutely and it's it's looking again you know at the value of the purple pound you know if, if we look at one in five of the population uh, their friends their family and, and if as you say a workforce reflects uh, you know the customers that they serve that can only be a good thing and i think people are now much quicker to pick up when that doesn't happen and i think you know social media has its, its pros and cons but i think that's a good way of kind of mobilizing people and saying, well, look, you know, here's a company that obviously values us. Um, you know, why would you not lend support? And that goes for a lot of organizations. I'm not, I'm not getting uh, paid or anything. By Microsoft. Because, yeah. um, yes, it's interesting because I think we've got better at spotting um, examples of sexism and racism, mm. particularly within sort of yeah. advertising and marketing. Yeah. But... I wonder, are we a bit slower when it comes to either lack of representation or negative representation of people with with disabilities? Absolutely. I think I think we are. And I think one of the things that I was in conversation quite recently with somebody who was very noticeable, they pointed it out, was, you know, they'd driven up Botanic Avenue uh, around Pride and every business without fail had a rainbow flag out, which was brilliant, absolutely brilliant to see. And, and rights are rights, and that would be our approach to it. And I think more and more now the conversation is happening and it is a wee bit slower but I think we're getting there you know disabled people need to be represented they need to be seen uh, they need to be perceived to have value uh, and, and a, a contributing part of society and I think businesses are, are starting to pick up on that but but it is definitely slower and I suppose one question that I really want to ask you is that whether the fact that we've been through a decade largely of austerity and the cuts that have been associated with that have had an impact on the ability both for organisations like Disability Action to um, carry out the work that you do, but also on individuals in terms of their ability to find and stay in work. Yeah, absolutely. The, the austerity agenda has had um, a devastating impact on disabled people. Um, you know, certain political viewpoints and certain uh, media outlets um, for the past 10 years or more uh, are, are playing a narrative that disabled people are largely to blame for the recession. Um, at one point there over the last decade, you could have looked at any kind of thing and, and disabled people were blamed in some shape or other. Um, I think that makes it incredibly difficult for disabled people, regardless of their age. If you're a young disabled job seeker um, or if you're a disabled person that, that isn't fit to work and, and require the safety net uh, of Social Security, which is being eroded to the point of, of non-existence, I think you're in a, a very, very difficult position. So you're you're expected to go out and work if you can, but the employer is, is, is not in a position to, to let you into work or you're not getting successful with your job applications. OK, Social Security isn't there. How do you live? You know, you can't live. People are relying on food banks and stuff like that. I think this last decade has set the clock back considerably for disabled people. And I think hopefully uh, we're coming to the end of that. But the damage that has been done in terms of legacy, particularly around Social Security, is one that is going to take an awful long time to work out. I think, you know, it's important uh, when we're speaking about it earlier, 
disabled people need to be involved uh, in the design uh, and the development uh, and the delivery of, of services and systems for them. And if they're not, I think this is a classic example of what happens. And in addition, in Northern Ireland, we've obviously had the added situation that for almost two and a half years, actually, no, coming up on three years yeah. now, <laughs> that there's been no assembly in place. So do you look at your counterparts in other parts of the UK and Ireland where there is functioning government? And while they've had to deal with austerity, they haven't had this additional challenge. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think, you know, that that kind of mechanism uh, or, or legislator is, is not there. Um, and our ability to get better legal protection is completely frozen uh, across the water of the, of the Equality Act. We're still relying on the Disability Discrimination Act, which, which is significantly weakened and needs replaced. But that, that cannot happen without our assembly up and running. It, it potentially could theoretically, but it's low down the list of priorities for Westminster at the minute. Um, I think the longer that goes on, the more difficult it becomes. And I think the worry for disabled people is they typically feel that they're at the back of the queue. So even when we do get this up and going, there is going to be a, a potential further delay as all that other stuff that is piled up gets dealt with. And I think it's important for, for disabled people and their allies to continue to make noise around that. That needs to happen. I think that's to everybody's benefit. Having strong legal protection will protect disabled people, will protect businesses. It gives everybody clear guidance as to what should be happening. It stops the uncertainty. Absolutely. And it is that fear that will fall to the, the bottom of the list of priorities. But actually, it could also be a really amazing opportunity to become world leaders in terms of um, legislative provision in Northern Ireland. And your work would take a very international focus at times. You would be aware of what's happening around the world. Is there anything we could learn from other countries that we could bring in um, whenever this opportunity arises? Absolutely. I mean, I've been very, very privileged over the last few years to work in a number of countries around the world on these on these issues. Um, I think one of the big things, um, looking towards the United States, uh, I've been privileged to, to speak at a number of the Harkin summits. Uh, there is definitely a, a much more pride held in being a disabled person. You know, that, that kind of disability as a political identity, as a block of people who can affect change. Um, next year they're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act and I think there, there's a lot to be learned there in terms of mobilisation uh, in terms of how they campaign how they lobby, how they speak to their political leaders and how they, they affect change and affect pressure You know, pressure on the levers, now we're looking at, a, at a, an election coming up in 2020 in the States and disabled people uh, are having a lot of sway uh, we're seeing all the candidates coming out with, with their viewpoints on disability I think that's a very strong thing um, they also frame it in terms of rights uh, I think some people here do that. Others are, are a bit more nervous about the word rights, and I think we shouldn't be nervous of that. Disabled people are rights holders like anybody else. Um, I think what what is very telling to me is, regardless of the country, I mean, I've worked in countries in the developing world as well, if, if there is the right intention and there are, or there are a body of disabled people uh, and their allies, anything is possible. And I think we need to encourage that type of thinking and that type of you can be a leader and you are a leader in fact not this kind of you'll be a leader 20 or 30 years down the line you know um, speaking to people with muscular dystrophy and saying oh in 20 years time you could be a leader you're a leader now if you're advocating and you're you're voicing your opinion and you're doing it in a positive constructive way you're a leader you're showing leadership bring other people with you that was a question that I wanted to ask you about was that whenever I was reading around this issue on Disability Action website um, and other um, other websites, I noticed that there's a lack of high profile role models for people with disabilities and senior leadership in business. Do you think that's something that needs to be addressed? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think it would go an awful long way. I think there are undoubtedly uh, chief executives out there, you know, locally and further afield uh, that, that, are, that are disabled people and maybe just aren't, aren't vocalising that as much. I think that'll come to the fore in time. Um, I think more generally, um, disabled leaders full stop. And I know we'd spoken about Paralympians and stuff like that, but just just and I say quote unquote the average John and Jane if they are working and part of their community where they're making a difference um, you know President Obama would talk about community activists and stuff like that and you know we have community activists over here sometimes it's 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 not looked on as a positive thing but where you're working to affect positive change and you're disabled you know that that should be lifted up that that type of behaviour is the stuff that's going to affect change and I think that for us as an organisation is our strategic plan that is where we're going as an organisation we've been through an awful lot of change in the last few years but we are very confident in how we're moving forward and doing that and we're, look, we're looking forward to working with people and, and building relationships and, and working with people like yourselves Laura to try and affect change regardless of where it happens and the final question I have for you is what through your experience and your work with Disability Action, can organisations do to better support people with disabilities in the workplace? First and foremost, uh, speak to disabled people. <laughs> that sounds very, very simple, very. But but the amount of times that doesn't happen uh, and people will run round. Now I think at, at times there can be a challenge and there can be a fear around that. So speak to disabled people. But equally, if you're an employer, for example, and you're looking for professional advice and you don't know how to have that first conversation, uh, reach out organizations like ourselves you know we are happy to provide advice and support and if it isn't us we were very quick to signpost you to someone that will help you the support the advice is out there and i think for businesses especially what what we quite often say is you know if this was any other area of your business that you weren't familiar with you go out and you'd get advice and support you'd speak to experts so speak to the experts um i think create a culture uh, where, where disabled people are accepted uh, and don't be afraid to challenge any negative talk and negative thinking. It happens everywhere uh, and it, it can affect us all, even if we don't realise it. So, so you know, stand out, be proud. And I think the other thing that you could do is, you know, when you're looking at things like recruitment, go above and beyond. You know, this, this, this notion of legal minimums, am I doing enough? What can I do to encourage more disabled people into my organisation? And, I mean, you'll reap the rewards. Absolutely, and there's a lot of organisations, um, including Microsoft, you yeah. mentioned, and other companies like Marks and Spencer's, who I've spoken to previously, who really say we have seen the benefits yeah. of this. And from all that you've said, I get the impression it's a case of if you haven't done it before, then you need to do it now because it's only going to become a more pressing issue over the next decade. So why not um, get ahead um, of your competitors, speak to organisations like Disability Action and position yourself as an organisation that is open to everybody. Absolutely. Keep moving. Thank you. Sean, thank you for agreeing to take part today and thank you to the audience for listening. For more information on the Good Business Podcast and our other work related to ethics, responsibility and sustainability, you can follow us on Twitter at QUBFX or email ERS at QUB.ac.uk. Thank you, Sean, for a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much, Laura.